you haven't found it yet, Isaiah 25 is on page 708 of the Bible in the chair in front of you. Page 708. Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under him as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will spread out their hands in it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. Amen. Lord, these are challenging verses to, to hear. To know that you are the judge is an awesome thing. But we pray that we would indeed have a true recognition of who you are in all your greatness and your majesty and your glory and that we would indeed be able to say, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So as you saw on the screen, there it is. Uh, the title of this evening's sermon is God's triumph over evil. And uh, the, the, the biblical word for this is salvation. So we see there in chapter 25, verse 9, surely this is our God. We trusted in him. And he saved us. That's what God's primary role is, as John was reminding us at the beginning of the, the service. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And I do pray that by the end of this service, we will be singing along with, uh, with Isaiah. And as we sing our final song, we will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward and uh, that we will see what salvation really means for us, perhaps in, in a fresh way. 
I think often Christians can rather underestimate what salvation is all about, and we think of it as being sort of coterminous with being forgiven um, or having a, a fulfilled life or just knowing peace in times of trouble. And, of course, salvation includes those wonderful things, but it's much richer than that. And there's a danger, I think, that if we have a limited view of salvation, we'll have a limited view of God, and if we have a limited view of God, uh, then we will fear other things rather than fear the living God. And we will trust in other things rather than trust in God who is the King. Now, this evening, I just have two simple points. Salvation from what and salvation for what. And these two are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. So when the school child says, I've been saved by the bell, what they're saying is, I've been saved from the physics test, hooray, hooray, and I've been saved for footy in the playground. The boxer who is saved by the bell is saved from being beaten up by his opponent and he's saved for the comfort of the wet sponge to revive him. Salvation from what and salvation for what? First of all, salvation from what? We are saved from judgment and destruction. And the text for for this first point is basically all of Isaiah 24 and most of Isaiah 25. It's actually quite a bleak read, and if we'd read the whole of chapter 24, um, even bleaker. Now, to talk about the judgment of God is not very politically correct, and I I guess if uh, I was invited to preach on whatever I'd like to preach, I might um, be tempted to duck preaching on judgment. Um, We're very happy as Christians to talk about salvation when it includes things like God's love, and eternal life, and rescue. But in the Bible, whenever God rescues his people, rescue, or salvation, always involves judgment and the destruction of sinners. God only rescues because he destroys. So think of Noah, for example, in Genesis. Noah and his family are saved, but God's enemies are destroyed. Moses, the great story of the Exodus, everyone knows that. If you've seen the Prince of Egypt, Moses and the people of Israel are rescued as they come through the waters of the Red Sea, but the Egyptian armies chasing are drowned. Likewise, Joshua, on entering the Promised Land, God gives them a great victory. They're finally in God's land, where, which he's promised them all those hundreds of years ago. But entering the promised land means the defeat of the Canaanites. Now, some people would say, well, that's just the Old Testament for you. You know, a kind of cross, angry God who likes smiting people. It's not like that in the New Testament. Well, not a bit of it. Think of Mary in the Magnificat. The first statement, really, about Jesus. Before he's born, Mary says, he that God has shown the strength of of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. 
Jesus himself said in, in Luke chapter 10, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Salvation involves destruction and judgment. You cannot have VE Day without first having D Day. And when you think about it, we are hardwired for justice. About the first phrase that a two-year-old puts together is, it's not fair. And we go on saying it all our lives. So I come out of the supermarket and there's a dent in my car. And whoever's driven into my car has driven off without leaving a note on the windscreen. And I'm furious, because who picks up the bill? It's not fair. When a prisoner is released on a technicality and the guilty walk free, we say, it's not fair. When insurgents walk into a church in the Middle East and shoot dead men, women, and children, and then move on unchecked to carry out similar carnage in another village, we cry out. It's wrong. It's not fair. Our hearts cry out for justice. The guilty deserve punishment. And it's right for the guilty to be punished. And that is the big point that Isaiah is making in chapters 24 and 25. God, in saving, by definition, judges. Indeed, every time we say the the creed, we say this phrase. He, that's Jesus, will come again to judge the living and the dead. Judgment is integral to Christian belief. It's integral to salvation. And these two chapters in Isaiah 24 and 25 is basically saying that God's judgment will be total and absolute and irresistible. And it's also just and certain, and right. And indeed, for anyone who has a heart that wants to see right prevail, we must be glad that when God talks of judgment, that it's a good and holy and perfect and fair God who carries out that judgment. Now, notice various things about God's judgment in these two chapters. First of all, chapter 24, verse 2, God's judgment is absolute. All will be affected. Chapter 24, verse 2, it will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. I think we've got the message, haven't we? The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. All will be affected. There won't be any diplomatic immunity or parliamentary privilege on the day of judgment. Verse 3, the earth will be completely laid waste. Chapter 25, verse 2, over the page, the city, that's Babylon, will become a heap of rubble that will never be rebuilt. Now, usually after a war, when a city has been destroyed, it is rebuilt. 
but God's judgment is absolute. Secondly, his judgment is carefully planned. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. In your perfect faithfulness, you've done marvelous things, things planned long ago. Sounds like a sort of one of those cozy psalms. What has God planned long ago? Well, look at verse 2. You've made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin. The judgment of God was planned right at the beginning. So we go back to Genesis chapter 3, where God promises that one day he will send someone to crush the serpent's head. So judgment's there right at the start, and the promise is repeated throughout the Bible. Third, God's judgment will be a source of misery. Chapter 24, verses 7 to 9. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to the drinkers. Now, sometimes people have said to me, I'm sure they've said it to you, well, frankly, I don't want to go to heaven because I'd like to be with my mates in the other place. You know, I'm a, you know I know I'm never going to go to heaven and I'm sure my mates won't either. I'd much rather hang out with them. They're my sort of people. Well, there will be no happiness in the other place, according to these verses. There'll be no camaraderie. Where there is no God, there will be no love. All joy, verse 11, turns to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. We mustn't be fooled. The Bible's quite clear. And again, if we think this is just an Old Testament idea, we, we, must, we need to be corrected. Over half of Jesus' parables deal with the subject of either judgment or heaven and hell and the need to get right with God. And Jesus describes those who are judged as going to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound like a place where my mates and I are going to have a great time. But as well as God's judgment being a source of misery, God's judgment is also a source of joy. Back at chapter 25, verse 1, Isaiah is uh, full of praise. God is to be praised because justice is done. There is a day set when there will be no more temptation, where there'll be no more sin or suffering or sorrow or sadness. And Satan will be utterly destroyed forever. The whole book of Isaiah anticipates the coming of the one called Emmanuel, as we saw last week the one who is going to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And that great Christmas reading in Isaiah chapter 9, <clears throat> funnily enough, it goes from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, and then it skips to chapter 9 verse 6, because in verses 3, 4, and 5, it says that that child, Emmanuel, is going to destroy those who stand against God. You see, we're so embarrassed in the church at talking about God's judgment that we, we airbrush out the uncomfortable bits and we just say, he's going to bring light. Hooray. Well, light means he's going to shine his light in our darkness. And the rest of Isaiah develops this picture of this child 
who goes on in chapter 40, uh, 40 to 55 as the suffering servant, and then from 56 to 66 to be the warrior king. And that's how it pans out when Emmanuel comes onto the scene in the Gospels. Jesus begins his ministry with a battle against Satan in the desert, and Jesus wins, hands down. Later, Jesus says to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning, defeated. Just before his crucifixion, the night before, Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world, that is Satan, will be cast out. And then looking back on Jesus' crucifixion, Paul, writing to the Colossians, describes how at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, triumphing over them by his death. So Emmanuel becomes the suffering servant, who in turn becomes the warrior king, who leads this wonderful triumphal procession with his enemies defeated coming in his wake. This is Jesus he will ultimately destroy all evil. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. A great hymn that we sing to a rousing, rightly fantastic tune is, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And we sing this hymn joyfully because it is a source of joy that God will win. That evil doesn't have the last word, even in our wicked world. God will triumph. A day will come when we will no longer struggle against sin. There will be no more tsunamis. There will be no more shootings in street cafes. And no more celebrity atheists puffing themselves up with their ridiculous complaints against the almighty God. God will judge. He will triumph. Our God reigns, is the great message of Isaiah. Salvation, salvation, therefore, means that we are saved from judgment. It reads as a very bleak read, but salvation means that we're rescued like that, as someone once said, like a brand from the burning. Second, saved for what? First was saved from what? Second, saved for what? We are saved for the new creation. We are saved for the new creation. Chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. Now, if I walked around the church with a, uh, the roving mic and asked you, what, what do you think is one of the best things about being a Christian? I think we get a variety of responses, and it would probably be things like, knowing my sins are forgiven, uh, the enjoyment of friendship with fellow Christians, uh, the joy of worship, uh, freedom to be the kind of person God has made me to be, the Holy Spirit giving me power in my life, and so on. Now, all these things are absolutely true. No one would disagree with that, and it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. But all those things are things of this world. When Isaiah wants to describe the joy of salvation, he looks straight ahead to the new creation. 
he goes straight to heaven. So look at chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers up all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. And if the Lord has spoken, what he means is, so it's going to happen. You see, that list of things that we might come up with, the great things about being a Christian, things like forgiveness, will always be tempted by our awareness of our sinfulness. Our freedom to be the person God wants us to be has to be balanced with our, the fact that, that we aren't the people we want to be. Our fellowship with other Christians is often spoiled by our selfishness and our pride. The power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is there, but we're also very conscious about how far we fall short. And joy in the Christian life is often tempered by disappointment and failure and bereavement. But Isaiah's picture of the new creation is a, one of unadulterated joy and total happiness that can never fade away. It's actually very much um, echoed um, in Revelation 21. And for those who say that the Old Testament knows nothing of the afterlife, I think these verses give the lie to that. But notice a few things about this fantastic picture of heaven. First of all, it's a coronation feast in verse 6. All the jubilees and the carnivals and the banquets, all the royal weddings, the fiestas, the parties, all the anniversaries and the Valentine's days and all the joy and pleasure of a thousand years pale into complete insignificance compared to the splendor and the glory of the feast of heaven. It'll be a place of rich food with the best of meats and the, the finest of wines. Now, for, for those of you who are wine buffs, and I'm not, um, this means that there won't be any of that cheap wine that you get that gives you a headache uh, that you, you typically get served at student parties, lukewarm. No, no, no. This is the £2,000-a-bottle Chateau Neuf du Pape, 1963, a particularly good year, so I'm told. There won't be any cheap cuts of meat at this banquet, this will be filet mignon. And if you're a veggie, I'm sure it'll be pretty good too. And none of us at this banquet will ever give a thought to cholesterol or the bathroom scales. It's a coronation feast. And notice who the host is, verse 6. The host is the Lord Almighty. Forget your celebrity chef. Forget British Bake Off. The Lord Almighty is the chef. He's preparing the meal. Forget your Buckingham Palace garden party or the Chiltern Firehouse, which the Evening Standard tells me is the place to be seen. I've never been to either of those places. But this party is on this mountain. That is, on God's holy hill, Zion, the city of God in Jerusalem. 
This is a heavenly banquet. This is a banquet that will never end. This will be a banquet that will be without a, a tinge of regret. I'm sure we've all been to weddings where in the midst of you know, the happiest day of the couple's life, someone has raised a glass to absent friends and in quaking voice says, oh, how I wish Granny could have been here to see this. Even our happiest days bring tears to our eyes because this life will pass. This banquet will never end. This banquet is not spoiled by death. Look at verse 7. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. Do you see how that word all comes again and again? All peoples, all nations. He'll swallow up death for all time. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. He will swallow up death forever. So he's going to reverse the effects of the fall. And it happens, verse 6, on this mountain. And Isaiah is speaking of a specific place where this will be achieved. The hill in Jerusalem. Actually, a hill just outside the city wall in Jerusalem. A hill called Golgotha. So Emmanuel will achieve this victory in Jerusalem. And later on in Isaiah 53, we'll see that this victory was won by the suffering servant. The Lord laid on him, Jesus, the punishment that brought us peace. And this coronation gives way to a glorious celebration, verse 9. In that day, that is the day when Emmanuel makes it possible for us to become friends with God again. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. You see, we mustn't misunderstand how wonderful salvation is. Jesus saves us from judgment, which is awesome and terrible. He saves us from all that. And he saves us for a new creation, a perfect existence with God, free from everything that spoils this world. So what else can we do but say with Isaiah, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Let's pray.